Hello there, welcome to Jubes and Curd, the podcast of my show on GB News. My name's Michelle Jubery, and you can catch me live every weekday evening from 6 till 7pm. But worry not, if you miss it, you can catch up here after every show. So let's do it. Welcome to Jubes and Curd. Well, keeping me company until 7 o'clock tonight, my panel, we've got Lee Jones, who's the Professor of Political Economy and International Relations, sociologist at Swansea University, Dr Ashley Frawley, and former Labour advisor Scarlett Maguire. And you know the drill on Jubes and Co by now, don't you? It's not just about us here and our thoughts. No, it is not. It's about you as well at home. What's on your mind tonight? What's got you talking? What are you thinking about? What's your thoughts on all the topics and what... Have I missed? What am I not talking about? That I should be. Get in touch with me. You can email me, gbviews at gbnews.uk. You can tweet me at Michelle Jubes uh, or at gbnews. Don't forget, of course, you can subscribe to us on YouTube, listen to us on the radio. We've got an app, a podcast. We're pretty much everywhere. Alex, you was my first email tonight uh, asking me, what do you think, Michelle, to the fact that the Lib Dems took over Hull City Council at the last uh, local elections? Well, I say, quite frankly, good. I think that it was time for a change in the city. Uh, we shall see what happens with it. Uh, by the way, turnout was really quite low. I was just having this conversation, actually. The turnouts for local elections are so ridiculous. I think in Hull it was something like 23 26%. Do you go out and vote? I have to confess, I didn't. Uh, anyway, let me know your thoughts on all of that. Right, got to kick it off with a topic that I can't bear. This is my caveat. You will know if you watch this show by now. I find Partygate and Beergate, I just find it ridiculous. I find it so boring. I find it a, a storm in a teacup. I've hated the way this has been jumped on uh, purely for political gain. I've always wondered to myself, so I have about double standards. Uh, and you know what I think about this already. But what do you think about it? Are you interested in this story? Um, I'm not really, but I am interested in the whole double standards. You will have just seen in the news headlines there that Keir Starmer, he said that if he gets a fine, basically for the curry and the beer stuff, uh, he will resign. So uh, apparently did Angela Rayner. Ashley, I might die of boredom if I spend too long on this topic, but nonetheless, I do think it's in important actually that we pick up on it, uh, given the press conference that's just happened. Your thoughts? Well, I was very glad to see that you pulled up that tweet because I thought that I was the only one who remembered very distinctly Starmer making a big deal about the fact that a prime minister was under criminal investigation and that was enough for him to resign. And Angela Rayner did it, by the way, as well. <laughs> um, and now, uh, well, it's, uh, suddenly it's, well, let's all wait and see. The same kind of line that... Um, that uh, Boris Johnson was criticised for taking. Um, and I think also the call for him to resign because there was an investigation um, was reckless because he was basically saying, look, there's no, snow, there's no smoke without fire. And you want, obviously, to give your enemies the same rights as you would give yourself because precisely because you may one day find yourself in this mm. situation. And that's an important lesson for anyone who uh, brings on... Uh, laws and um, bans and so on because it benefits them against their enemies because eventually it's going to come back to bite you. Yeah, what's that saying? Let him without sin cast the first stone, is it, I think? Anyway, Lee, are you as energised by this topic as I am or not? I'm not really energised, no. We have discussed it many times and I feel the same way as I, as I did before, which is 
The issue is less about rule breakers, although people rightly feel aggrieved that it's one rule for them and one rule for us. But people should always focus on the rules themselves. When people in government were breaking these rules, they were signalling they didn't believe in these rules. They didn't think that they were necessary. Mm, uh, and indeed. indeed, for many, many members of society, those harsh lockdown rules were not necessary because most people were not at serious risk. So that's what we should be focused on. I hate to repeat myself, but we should be focusing on the regime of rules, um, often very authoritarian rules, that the entire country was placed under for two years with very limited parliamentary oversight. We still need to be asking questions about that time, questions that go beyond, you know, was it 18 minutes for a curry scheduled at the end of the day? These are petty matters, really, relative to the whole way in which we were governed over the past two years. We still need to ask those kinds of questions. Lee, I completely agree with you. I've always said uh, that this whole thing I've found very petty, but nonetheless, I don't find uh, double standards petty. I can't help it. Scarlett, your thoughts? Um, I, I think there's an enormous... The reason that the police investigated what was going on in Number 10 was because by that time we knew there were a number of parties. There, were, there was beer being taken in in suitcases. Allegra Stratton had said had giggled about what she should say in a press conference about parties. So there was no question that when the police did investigate that that we knew that wrongdoing had, got, had gone and, you know, f there have been 50 people who've been fined. So it's completely different to where the Durham police have... I mean, the Daily Mail have done seven days running a front-page thing about it, so they've, they've pushed into... I think he's absolutely right. I think he's completely right to say... I'll go because because I don't I shouldn't be breaking the rules. But hang on but though, because Scarlett, he said, didn't he? And I just put it up there on the screen, and he I, was but, saying Boris should resign at the point of investigation. But I've I tried to explain the difference was when when the police investigated, we knew there'd been wrongdoing. We knew there were parties. I can see that my eyes work, Scarlett, and I can <laughs> see that there's been wrongdoing. I can see it with my own eyes. Come on, what? they're there with curries and no, beers and on. all the rest been, of it. They've been working. They'd been, they'd been campaigning all evening and at the end of the day, they had a curry together, right? Because the restaurants were closed. That's fine. No, but the hotels we, was doing room service. We, Don't wash with me, we, there. We will, we will find out. There's no question. I mean, if Keir broke the law, he will resign. But what, what, what I think, the people who are praying that he does not get a fine are the Tories. Because how can you have Keir saying, I will resign if I, if I get a fine, and Boris saying... No. Well, Dave, so it viewers, puts them in a very difficult position. Dave, viewers, as I said, I'll end as I started. I couldn't care less about any of this. I think it's all ridiculous. Scarlett says it was uh, a bit of food at the end of the day. I say the clue there is at the end of the day. So when you finish your work, you go home. You have your own food there. Or if you're in the hotel, you can have room service. Anyway, I got that off my chest. At least I feel like I've you know, covered it. What do you think? Do you care about this topic? That is my question to you. Uh, anyway, let's move on, shall we, to other matters. Some might say much more important matters. President Putin has cast NATO as the aggressor in Russia's annual victory parade. He says the Russian troops are fighting to defend the motherland from NATO plans to seize Russian-held lands. I've got to say, though, there was some kind of wondering here about is he going to use uh, today's situation basically to declare war on Ukraine? and escalate things. He didn't now. Of course, it's been 10 weeks since the invasion of Ukraine. What do we think to this? I want to start with you. Um, he was quite specific today, wasn't he? At Victory Day, this is quite a big deal in Russia. It's a, it's a holiday. Um, 
President Putin, and this is nothing new, he's pushing and saying that this is essentially NATO's fault. Lots of people are disagreeing with this. Where do you stand on it, Lee? Well, Putin himself has engaged in aggressive war against Ukraine. There's no doubt about that. The, the issue is that the speech gives you an insight into the way that the Kremlin and, entire, and the entire Russian political spectrum has thought about Ukraine for decades. So we don't have to go very far back to find people like the current CIA, CIA director, who, when he was ambassador to Moscow, warning Washington that the expansion of NATO into Ukraine is the reddest of red lines for everybody across the entire political spectrum, from Kremlin knuckle-draggers through to the most liberal critics of the regime. Let me just ask you on this one particular point, because I found it interesting. In your mind, was there ever assurances given that NATO would not expand further? Because depending on who you listen to, what you believe, what you think, it, there's very uh, mixed messages on this. Some people say that Russia were given a, an assurance that it wasn't going to happen. Other people say nonsense, no such formal assurance agree, um, took place. It really rests on the way that you interpret some remarks that the Americans made to Gorbachev towards the end of the Cold War about NATO not moving a, a one inch eastwards. So there were some kind of vague comments made, and it depends what spin you put on those. But apart, quite apart from that, about whether there were assurances made, the Russians made clear all the way through the 90s and the 2000s and the 2010s that they considered the expansion of NATO humiliating for Russia and a threat to Russian security interests. And right before the war, Putin called on the Americans to engage in negotiations to create a neutral buffer zone between NATO and Russia and to stand down long-range missiles capable of hitting Russia. So I think there's no doubt, I think, regardless of any specific comments that were made here or there, the, the, the whole trend of Russian policy is very clear and members of the current Biden administration made that perfectly clear when they were serving in diplomatic uh, capacities elsewhere, that they saw the expansion of NATO as a threat and many in the United States establishment considered the expansion premature, reckless, provocative. So any, anybody that accuses me or anybody that draws attention to this history of being you know, some kind of Putin apologist or whatever is simply ignoring established history. This has been the Russian line for two decades plus. So what Putin's saying when he's accusing NATO of aggression is simply coming out with the line that he has been saying for a very long time. And there are many military analysts that draw attention to the stationing of long-range missiles in Ukraine as being the thing that initially triggered the timing of the invasion. So he's overlooking his own aggression, his own intervention, his own destruction of Ukrainian sovereignty and so on. But he is pointing towards real things that NATO has done mm. and, from his perspective, threatening Russia in the process. And so from, this is important to say that he views this invasion as a preventive and defensive measure, even though it is at the same time an aggressive step. Um, in a second, I, I want to bring Scarlett in for now, but in a second I want to come back to you because I want to ask you, you know, about the whole NATO expansion. We know that imminently, potentially anyway, Sweden, Finland uh, could look to be joining NATO. So I'm interested in your view in a second on what you think that might mean. But for now, Scarlett, your thoughts on it? I, I mean, I completely agree with Lee, and I do remember back uh, uh, with the fall of the Soviet Union that actually the, the problem was, was was the West felt so triumphalist that they didn't actually realise that they had to think they had to think long term about how to deal with 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 an injured country. I mean, it's a bit like Germany after the First World War. Is actually when somebody is lost, you 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 don't push it in. On the other hand, you know, we had countries like Poland who 
who, who their hatred of Russia goes back years. But I, I think at the moment, one of the other things that is a real problem is that we keep on hearing what Putin's going to do by experts, by Kremlinologists, and they're always wrong. I mean, we heard he was going to... Um, he was going to declare victory today. He was going to uh, make things war. worse. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> declare war. war. Yeah. I mean, none of those things happened. And what I find so frightening is how much we don't know about what's really going on with this guy. And then, I mean, to sort of to, to add the sort of tragicomic stuff is you've got the Daily Mail that every day... So he's had Parkinson's, he's had long yeah. COVID. Today, he walked with a limp while, while the Daily Telegraph correspondent said that his limp had gone. I mean... These people are concentrating, trying to make Putin out to be a madman, when yeah. actually we need to deal with this guy because he, I mean, he is truly dangerous. Mm. Ashley? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I, I'm, I'm sorry to have too much agreement. I will bring in one point that I'm not sure about, but um, I, I, I've been very disturbed by this, this coverage of Putin in the press. Um, and, and, and just today as well, um, uh, was it Ben Wallace was saying, was comparing... Um, Russia to Nazi Germany, Putin to Hitler. Uh, and this this is really worrying because this is not World War II. We need to deal with the situation that we have in front of us. We need to understand, the, uh, understand what's going on. But also, casting both sides casting each other as Nazis means that there's no chance of any uh, peaceful way out of this. The only option is to escalate the conflict because what happens, why would you appease? Everybody knows that the policy of appeasement was a disaster. So now any, any kind of negotiation becomes appeasement, and I think that's really dangerous. Um, but the, the one thing that I'm concerned about is, and that I'm not sure about, is so many countries were joining NATO or, because they feared Russian aggression. So... And, and on top of that, I, we can recognize also that NATO has been reckless, that NATO is not, um, is not innocent here. But we now have a situation where the Ukrainians want to fight. So what do we do about that? You can say, oh, a plague on both your houses. And then what does that mean? We just walk away? Westerners wash their hands of it? I don't know. Looking at you, I'm looking at the resident international uh, affairs expert. Yeah, because Lee, Lee and Lee's debate with Frank Ferrady, I recommend people go and have a look at it on GB News on Anaya Falaran's show, was, was really instructive in terms of we do have a serious stalemate here because um, the Ukrainians have put forward this um, sovereign desire to fight this, to, to fight to fight the Russians and to, and to take... To be in charge of their own destiny, yeah. so to speak. Yeah. Lee, what's the answer? Well, when it comes to you know, NATO's involvement, the more that foreign powers get involved in your politics, the less you are in control of your own destiny. So Russia is intervening in Ukraine, but now NATO is intervening in Ukraine. One of the things that Putin drew attention to in his speech was the fact that although Ukraine is not in NATO, NATO has been in Ukraine for a long time arming them, training them, reorganising the military. It's one of the reasons why the military didn't fold when the, when the Russians engaged is because NATO's already started to use Ukraine as a kind of cat's paw against, mm -hmm. against um, Russia. And that isn't working out well for the Ukrainian people. And the more that, the more that NATO gets involved and turns this into a long-term proxy, proxy war against Russia, which is clearly what's happening. So yeah. the US and UK have already declared the goal is to push um, Russia out of Ukraine and ideally topple, topple the Putin government. The more that NATO's interest and agenda takes over, 
the less the Ukrainians are in control of their own destiny. So, of course, the Ukrainians, you know, they should be supported in so far as if they want to buy arms to equip their, their, their personnel to fight the Russian invasion, I have no objection to um, selling them weapons to, to defend themselves. But the more NATO kind of takes over the direction of the war effort, the less the Ukrainians are in charge of their own destiny. See, we've just got an email in, and I, I will just read this out because I feel I, we get this sentiment frequently when we try to have these conversations. So Sue's just written in and said, your Russian-loving panel tonight <laughs> is evil. And she's saying that they're switching off. I don't know if you're still with us, Sue, or if you have indeed switched off. But I find this absolutely fascinating. Um, because to me, as a non-expert on international affairs, I think it is surely dangerous to simply ignore one entire perspective of this conflict and bury your heads in the sand and literally just say, evil, 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 bye-bye, evil, evil, evil. I think to do that, you're doing yourself a monumental disservice in terms of, A, understanding what's caused this, B, understanding or trying to understand what will actually resolve this. So I personally think, Sue and anyone else that has this view, these kind of conversations, they are essential to have. Am I wrong? No, I completely agree with you, but it is intimately linked to the important point that Ashley raised about World War II. Uh, because it seems to me that the last time there was any real absolute moral clarity in this country was Second World War, right? The fight against fascism, because Nazism is the ultimate evil, the Holocaust, etc., etc. So there's a constant tendency when anything comes up that, that people want to shut down debate uh, and impose a moral framework on, that we constantly reach to World War II. And both sides in this are cosplaying World War II. Putin gave his speech... And there were people dressed up as Soviet-era heroes riding on the old Soviet tanks and so on. And Boris Johnson has been doing his, his best to cosplay as Winston Churchill uh, in his speech to the Ukrainian parliament and, and as, you know, Ben Wallace also comparing Putin to Hitler and so on. Mm. It is an attempt to impose a black-and-white schema onto a situation which is incredibly complicated. And if we operate like, frankly, I have to say this, like children, who think that the world is composed of goodies and baddies, and that's the framework through which we perceive international affairs, then we'll never understand why the world works, because there's just infinite number of shades of grey. And we'll never understand how we can intervene to change the world, to settle conflicts and to bring about peace. Scarlett, did you want to... Uh, well, what worries me... I agree with everything Lee said, and what worries me is, is what are we doing? Because... Because, um, I mean, Liz Truss, Boris Johnson, Ben Wallace have all st started making war noises. And, and I don't think as a country we have any idea of, 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 of what it would take. I mean, you know, are, we, are they sort of making the war noises and we're going to sit back and, and cheer Ukraine from the sidelines? Or more dangerous, are we going to get involved without actually understanding what it really means? Well, Nigel has written in. I mean, the emails are flying in on this topic. So Nigel says, so let me get this straight, Michelle. In 1940, would you have sat down and said, let's all sit down and listen to Hitler because he may have had a point. I mean, how do you even respond to this? I mean, I, keep, I don't want to just keep coming back to you, but I'm conscious that this is indeed the area that you've studied and it's your expertise. So I'm almost bowing to your expertise on this. Like, where do we go with this? Because I just find it such an oversimplification of an incredibly complex issue. But what would you say to Nigel? You shouldn't be trying to understand those that are evil, essentially. Well, if you decide, you know, ahead of, ahead of the fact this person is evil 
then of course you don't have any reason to understand why they're acting like that. Why do they do the things they do? How can we respond to that? How can we prevent these things happening in future? It's, it's, a, it's a moralistic approach to the world. And the, the policy of appeasement, what the policy of appeasement means is you have certain interests and I have certain interests. And in order to maintain peace, I might have to reckon with your interests and we might have to compromise. So this goes to the point that Scarlett raised about the Western triumphalism. We didn't see any reason to reckon with Russia's interests. Oh, it's weak. Oh, we've won. So we can trample on them. We can do whatever we like. Now, is that a useful policy? In the past, before Munich, before World War II, the policy of appeasement was just understood to be sensible diplomacy. If a country is large and powerful and is able to disrupt the peace, if its interests are not served, then there's a sensible thing to do, which is try to reckon with that country's interests in the existing order. You try to create an order in which I don't win everything. I don't trample on you all the time. I don't just ignore your interests. You also have some interest in maintaining the status quo. That's what appeasement meant. But it was completely discredited because this country and others chose to appease a leader that could not be appeased. So it was the wrong policy for that particular state at that particular time. Hitler could not be appeased because he was determined to build an empire in Europe. Now, I don't believe that Putin is that kind of leader. And I've pointed to many times on this programme, he does not have the economic or military power to be able to create an empire in Europe. All this idea that he wants to re-establish the Soviet Union, conquer Eastern Europe, he only has 280,000 men in his military. That's not even enough to occupy Ukraine. To occupy Ukraine, you would need over a million men. I said right at the start of this conflict that he was a relatively weak leader in a relatively weak and brittle regime, and Russia is a relatively weak military power. I think events have proven me right. He has not been able to take cities 20 kilometres from, from Russia's border. Right? He has been humiliated in the field. He has taken a large chunk of territory, but he hasn't achieved his war aims is coming out of this significantly weakened. So, but he's still able to disrupt the peace because he's still one of the military great powers. So it is a sensible policy for the maintenance of peace that you don't just, from a position of strength, trample on everybody else's interests and say, oh, well, you're evil, so we don't need to listen to you, when you still have the power to disrupt the peace. Yeah. Also, it's not entirely true that no one ever sought to understand what Nazi Nazism was. I mean, people were writing some of the things that we still read now, trying to understand what is national socialism. It's not like people just decided, oh, these people are evil, that's the end of it. You know, and people will say, oh, well, we shouldn't have to. We shouldn't have to deal with evil people. That's the kind of outlook that you get from... I'm sorry to say, some some young people who are inexperienced in politics yeah. who will say, well, we shouldn't have to, you know, argue against such and such. They're just beyond the pale, so we just won't have them on a platform, that sort of thing. It's the mm. same kind of logic. Um, but the, sure, maybe we shouldn't have to, but we do. We do need to understand. Um, we can't just label people as evil. Oh, well, they're Hitler. And, and nor did people do that in the 1930s. It's important to understand. They actually did try to seek to understand But also, Nazism. I think it's absolutely um, key. I just want to make this point. Seeking to understand something, seeking to discuss it, is nowhere near the same as condoning yep. anything. And this is a point that seems to be lost. And I can see my inbox. It's absolutely... <laughs> flooding in with people being quite rude, actually, as is, you know, as you're right, I believe in all opinions uh, being, being valid and welcome. But people have been so rude and saying, you're Putin apologist, you're Putin apologist. And to me, it's 
you're saying this almost as an attempt to stop a conversation. And I don't mean to be rude, but that's not going to work with me because I actually think that this conversation is an incredibly uh, important conversation to have because all of us share the same goal, which is for this conflict to be resolved as quickly as possible. And sticking fingers in ears and just shouting, psycho, psycho, evil, evil, I just don't really see how that's going to do it. I think it's a massive oversimplification. Um, and I can't apologise, actually. I won't apologise for seeking to understand a, com a, a complex international conflict. Uh, anyway, let me know your thoughts. I'm sure that you will. GBviews at gbnews.uk. I have to say, my inbox is still on fire uh, off the back of that conversation that we've just been having about the Ukraine and Putin uh, situation. And I, I just want to make the point, because I, I'm astonished that I need to make the point, but I'll make it nonetheless. Um, you know, every sane-minded individual would condone uh, what is going on in Ukraine, the killing of innocent people. You know, it is appalling. Um, it is not condoned. Uh, certainly not encouraged in any way, shape or form, nor have I heard any apology, actually, for anything that's gone on in this panel um, at all. But I stand by and I maintain that conversations are absolutely essential to create understanding. And crucially, the thing that not enough people seem to be talking about, if you ask me anyway, is the resolution of all of this, how on earth does this reach a closure as quickly and as safely, I mean, we've probably gone past that point, but as safely and as quickly as possible? Anyway, my inbox is flying in. You are not backwards in coming forwards in telling me what you're thinking tonight. Uh, continue GBviews at gbnews.uk. Now, Thursday's election in Northern Ireland saw a historic win for Sinn Féin in the Northern Ireland Assembly. But today, the DUP, the main opposition party, says it will not go back into Stormont until its concerns about post-Brexit trading arrangements are resolved. Now, uh, you do, uh, I think, I was just about to say, I think, in fact, I am certain, uh, Dougie Beatty, our Northern Ireland uh, correspondent, joins me now. Good evening to you, Dougie. What is the latest? Well, the latest has been we're back to where we were before these elections. If you remember, the DUP First Minister, Paul Given, resigned over the head of the protocol. The protocol has taken out consent out of Northern Ireland. Of course, the Good Friday Agreement was built around consent. Uh, it means that we are governed by Europe. We have no MEPs and we have no way of looking at divergence between ourselves and the UK's trading agreements and laws. So that brings the very existence of the trading inside the Union uh, into question. It replaces Article 6, the Act of the Union. In this election, the DUP went forward. They started off with 28 seats. The Sinn Féin had 27. They came back. Sinn Féin has 27. The DUP has 25. But Jim Allister, out of the uh, true unionist voice, who campaigned against the protocol, took 66,000 votes out of the DUP. You can see exactly where those uh, three seats went to. So at that point, 
This is a warning to the DUP from their unionist voters uh, that they are not happy with the situation. And Geoffrey Donaldson is now caught in the position where he don't go back into government. Uh, he has been promised the whole way along, and he said in his press conference today, I have been promised, I have been promised, and of course none of those promises came to pass, and he lost three seats and lost the majority inside uh, the House behind us. So he's not going to get back up into government at all, and he says that he won't even... Think about it until uh, there is movement on the protocol. Now, the Irish Taoiseach, uh, Micheál Martin, the Prime Minister, if you like, uh, has suggested that both these things should be done at the same time. The DUP are saying, no, this happened before, we were promised, it didn't happen, use move first. Sinn Féin are caught in possibly a worse position because they are not only the largest party in the north now, they are also the largest party in the south but don't govern in any, because they haven't got enough to form a government in the Republic, and they can't form a government on their own in the North, because we are held in a de Hunt-style government where it has to be coalition. There has to be consent from both sides of the community. So things in Northern Ireland have gone forward, but actually stood still. I can nearly hear Sonny and Cher playing in the background, because it is Groundhog Day, and I don't think it's going to go any further until the protocol is actually looked at. Fascinating stuff, Dougie. Thanks for your insight there. Scala, I'll pick up with you on this one. Uh, you know, for many people, actually, I think a lot of people were shocked, actually, by uh, Sinn Féin, the result that they actually received. Was it a couple of days ago? I mean, it feels like a lifetime. <laughs> well, I think oh. we got the results probably by Saturday, but the voting was on Thursday. Yeah, yeah, it feels like an absolute lifetime ago. And one of the things that I think is quite a shame uh, is for the people in Northern Ireland, uh, when you look at Sinn Féin and the way that they actually uh, kind of canvassed and all the rest of it, it was not so much in terms of border polls and Northern Irish protocols. It was more about the issues of the day, the cost of living, how it's going to affect your average man on the street. So I think actually being in this situation now where there potentially uh, is not going to be a quickly established government, I think it's a shame actually for those people who voted out of concerns for their current day-to-day -day life. But nonetheless, what do you think about it all? Yeah, I, I mean... <laughs> The, the problem with Northern Ireland, the, the, the complicated thing about Northern Ireland is, is that the, the Good Friday Agreement was set up with Protestants and Catholics, sort of Republicans and Unionists, against each other. And, and what we've got now, interestingly enough, is actually the Alliance Party that came third, mm. right? So Sinn Féin actually didn't increase their vote. I mean, as Dougie said, the Union... the, the the, the unionists lost to the to the TUV, uh, but they're all unionists. So actually, that was the same. But the people who really increased their vote was the alliance. Now the alliance didn't they go from something like eight to seventeen or something? Yeah, that yeah, kind of I, volume. Like 19, I mean, and and they they are not. I mean, they're secular. They're very very keen on saying, you know, we're not going to do one side or the other. And I think what's so terrible about about English, I mean, British mainland politics is we look at things. And so, you know, Brandon Lewis talks to the DUP. They are the important people. I mean, actually, um, if, you, if you look at the polling, most of Northern Ireland, I mean, it, it's only a majority by a little bit, but most of them actually don't care about the protocol. That isn't the big deal for them, right? It's only the unionists, that, 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 the unionists that care. And actually... 
It's a bit like what we were saying before. Is what we need to be thinking about is solutions rather than dividing people. And 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 I just I just I just look at the Alliance Party. You look at the young people who haven't grown up in the troubles, um, who are really really proud of um, TV things like Derry Girls, films like Belfast. That actually Northern Ireland has changed enormously. And. We in Westminster is still stuck in this time warp of Labour is the uh, SDLP, the, 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 they're not Sinn Féin, they're the sort of uh, more liberal Catholics, and, and uh, the, the, the Conservatives are the DUP. And, and this, isn't, this, isn't the, this isn't taking us anywhere. And, and actually, I mean, most of Northern Ireland, they don't want, they don't want to leave. I mean, it doesn't mm. matter what, what your religion is. Over half of them do not want to leave the United Kingdom. But we need to be talking to them rather than always talking to the extremists. Yeah, Ashley? Yeah, I would say I have to agree. I think it's easy to read too much, uh, but that's what's happening, is people are reading too much into this, as though it's this huge upsurge for a united Ireland. But actually, if you look more closely, it's that um, while Sinn Féin has benefited from some internal divisions, um, and the real story is, is the alliance party. I mean, now, it's not that that's the real story. I don't want to downplay that this is an historic result. Mm. But at the same time, um, it's not that people are, you know, wanting to go back to the past. It's the opposite. I think people, uh, particularly young people, want to move forward and focus on issues like, like housing policy, you know. And instead, we're reading the opposite, that this is actually a desire to, um, to uh, break up the union, a resurgence of that desire. I'm not sure that that's the case. Yeah, I don't see this as a massive kind of tick box for yay, like a step closer to dissolving the union. I don't see it like that at all. I see it probably, Lee, um, as a bit of a, almost a rejection, a further rejection, if you like, of Brexit because of this whole Northern Ireland protocol, people wanting perhaps to be uh, maybe slightly closer to Europe, if anything, at all. Uh, where do you stand on this, the whole Brexit thing? Um, well, I think just maybe to differ a little bit from Scarlett, I mean, it's not that the UK government, you know, likes to talk to the extremists. The Good Friday Agreement of 1998 institutionalised power sharing between sectarian parties. So it is a sad fact that from the formation of Northern Ireland as a statelet, it was designed, gerrymandered, to give a Protestant and unionist majority in that area. Um, so that, and, and that part of the population tyrannised the Catholic minority for many decades until they erupted uh, in protest and then uh, encountered violence and the, and the troubles began. And the, the way that conflict was settled was to institutionalise power sharing between the so-called nationalists and the so-called unionists. So it is impossible to form a government in Stormont without the agreement of the two sides. So it, it's not a choice. Uh, that's the way that the peace was agreed. And it has institutionalised a sectarian divide in Northern Irish politics, which although, yes, OK, there's some movement at the margins with the, with the alliance and so on, it's still there. I mean, I visited Belfast for the first time in my life last year. Did and you? it's remarkable. The peace walls, there are more peace walls now than there were back in the 90s. Lots of communities are still very polarised and divided around these identities. It's a reflection of the institutions as they've been created. So it, it is not possible under the Good Friday Agreement to create a government in Stormont just with Sinn Féin and with the Alliance or something like that. You can't cobble together that kind of arrangement. The Unionists have to agree. The Unionists won't agree mm -hmm. until the Northern Ireland Protocol is revised. And unfortunately, the EU has shown zero interest 
in renegotiating the protocol, which obviously, your viewers will remember, was negotiated under duress because Boris Johnson's government was desperately trying to enact Brexit uh, after many, many extensions, and so was had to go for the Northern Ireland Protocol as the least worst option. So the EU doesn't really want to renegotiate, renegotiate it. And the fundamental problem in Northern Ireland for the British state is that it cannot unilaterally say, OK, you know, we renounce the, the protocol. Legally, it could, right? Parliament could just decide we're not abiding by the protocol anymore or we trigger Article 16 and we're not abiding by the protocol anymore. The problem is the British state does not have enough sovereign authority in Northern Ireland to do that because large parts of the community do not accept the legitimacy of the British state and they never have done. And part of the difficulty is shifting demographics. So initially Northern Ireland was gerrymandered to produce a permanent unionist majority, but just recently the number of Catholics in the province has overtaken the number of Protestants. So the direction of travel, it seems to me, is towards the reunification of Ireland. That seems to me to be overall, and I expect that to happen within my lifetime. Do you? Mm. Hmm. Controversial, I don't. Um, I don't think that'll happen. Do you? Get in touch with me. By the way, uh, is anyone out there in Northern Ireland? I want to hear from you tonight. What are you thinking? Um, get in touch with me, gbviews at gbnews.uk. Reminder as to who is keeping me company tonight, Lee Jones, the Professor of Political Economy and International Relations, also a sociologist at Swansea University, Dr Ashley Frawley, and former Labour advisor, Scarlett Maguire. Now, um, you always know that it's not just about us here on this uh, show, it's about you at home as well. Uh, lots of you still writing in um, about uh, the topics that we've been discussing, particularly the Ukrainian-Russian uh, situation. Lots of you divided, though, by the way, on uh, Partygate, Beergate, whatever you want to call it. I mean, I call it Boringgate now. <laughs> I'm so over it, I can't even tell you. Um, but, yeah, a little bit of a divide there. Some of you proper into it uh, and think that Keir should absolutely be handing his resignation in. Uh, some of you are a little bit more like me and you couldn't care less. Anyway, get this right. I want to talk to you about accents. Um, I'm from Hull. I don't say that as a subtle hint, I drop it frequently. And on my panel, ladies and gentlemen, so is somebody else. Now, you've probably heard all of their voices by now, and I suspect if I asked you, based on voice alone, accent alone, which one is from the same city as me, you probably uh, wouldn't be able to guess. And I, the reason I bring this up, by the way, is because how frequently we are judged on the way we speak. Now, you know, in this day and age, you can't seem to discriminate against anyone for anything. You can't discriminate, you know, if someone's old, if they're disabled, if they're, um, I don't know, racially, religiously, whatever. Uh, it seems, though, to me anyway, that you can still um, get away with class prejudice. Accents, for example, the Hull accent, my one, uh, is repeatedly judged, isn't it? Um, apparently, if you sound like me, you're a bit dense, quite frankly, I'll say it as it is. I personally think that's a little bit harsh, but the other member of my panel that is from Hull and sounds much better than me, let's be honest, is Lee. You're from Hull, aren't you? Yeah. Uh, we have very different accents. This is all, by the way, about... There's a report out today that's talking about people uh, getting judged in their workplace or for workplace, um, you know, like, prospects because of their accents. That's why I'm discussing this. Anyway, Lee, uh, back to accents. Hull accents, we're from the same place. We sound very different. Um, did you make a conscious effort to change your accent, would you say? No, I didn't make a conscious effort, but I often say I had it beaten out of me at school. Um, <laughs> so at the age of 13, I won a government scholarship to go to a, a private school and I had a very broad Yorkshire accent at that time. 
and uh, you know, I was incredibly nastily bullied for it. Right? Teachers would call me Lee Jones from down the coal mine, for example. So I think as just a survival process, I just kind of adapted to that more um, you know, middle-class environment and then you know, I went away to university and I suppose became even more posh in the way that I sound, as we would say. Yeah, very posh. I'd love to know all these kids that call, all these teachers that called Lee, Lee down the corner. I'd love to know where you are. I bet you're not sat on GB News, are you? No, I bet you're not. Scarlett, what do you think? Uh, any prejudice for class uh, oh, accent? No, I think I think I think it's absolutely. I think it's fine if you're if you're from the Republic of Ireland or Scotland, and everybody loves those accents. Um, but but if you're from the West Country, you're definitely thought to be to be a bit of a yokel. And I mean, I went for a job at uh, Southampton Television, uh, Southern Television, based in Southampton, and they said, oh, no, no, you know, you've, you've got a Devon accent. We're not having you. Oh, so A Devon accent? A, a Devon accent. And I don't even think I did. But anyway, um, I, I had told them that, 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 that I'd, uh, I'd, 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 I'd lived in Plymouth for a couple of years. But I, th I mean, I think that, that it is incredible um, how, how difficult it is for people who do not have... Um, it, it doesn't have to quite be received pronunciation, but somebody like Lee, who is who is just about that. But if you've got a strong, if you've got a strong regional accent, it does make people think that you are more stupid than you are. Yeah, I think you're I, telling me. If I had a pound for everyone that called me a thicker, <laughs> based on my accent, I'd be minted. I tell you, I'd well, never I've need to got work a North again. American accent, which means that most people think that I'm American, uh, and so I bear the brunt of anti-Americanism quite a lot. And often, from people who think of themselves as quite progressive will come after me and say things like, how dare you, as an American, feel like you can pass judgments on the UK because I'll say something that they, that they, that's not left-wing enough or something like that. And I think, oh, so usually you're for immigrants, right? <laughs> Until an immigrant wants to have a say and has a, a quasi-American accent. But I am Canadian. And I'm from up north, and up until, you know, maybe uh, eight years ago, I still sounded like I was going to go hunt a moose. So. <laughs> well, Bernard says, Michelle, you should try being from Wigan. Uh, you should think yourself lucky. Uh, Bernard says that he has to change his accent so that people could understand him. Uh, Claire says, I've got no problem with, bad with accents, but it's bad grammar. She has a problem with it. Um, there you go. Lots of you. Um, Rod says, I'm from Scotland. And people down here take the mick. Do you know what I say? I just say, be yourself, be happy with who you are and ignore people that desperately try to put you down. That's what I say. Anyway, that's all we've got time for. Thank you very much to my panel and thank you as well for your company at home. Thanks for listening to Jubes and Cur, the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you will never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed it, leave us a nice comment. I'll see you next time. Thank you.